ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. The city of Bloomington is asking its residents to pick out new garbage and recycling containers ahead of the rollout of automated trash pickup later this year. Households will have three containers to choose from, 35, 64, and 96 gallons. Each household will receive one container for trash and one container for single-stream recycling. It will not be necessary to separate glass or metals from the recycling. A monthly fee will be attached to the regular city utility bill to replace the current trash ticket system. That fee will depend on the size of the container. The 35-gallon containers are between $4.80 and $6.50, and the large 96-gallon containers are between $13.70 and $18.50 per month. The 64-gallon containers are the default size, with a cost between $8.60 and $11.60 per month. Residents who wish to use 64-gallon containers do not need to take any action. However, anyone who wants the smaller container or the larger container will need to fill out a form and send it to the Department of Public Works. All residents currently receiving city sanitation services will receive a form in the mail. The deadline for choosing a container size is June 18th. The final rates for trash pickup will be determined in a public works meeting in late July, and delivery of the new containers will take place in the fall. The containers are specifically designed to work with the new trucks the city is purchasing to replace its existing fleet. The new trucks are equipped with an automated arm that will pick up the containers and empty them into the back of the truck. Standardized containers are required for the system to function properly. Residents who want to see the new containers before making a decision can stop by City Hall and containers will also be on display at Saturday Farmer's Market. In county news... The Monroe County Commissioners approved a grant of easement from Indiana Limestone last week. County Attorney Margie Rice says that securing the easement is part of creating a new recreational trail in the county. We've been working with Indiana Limestone and Texacon for more than a year to try to develop permission to cross their property with a future recreational trail. Um, it will connect to the B-Line, head south on what the county now owns, uh, the Indiana Railroad Corridor, and it will take recreational trail users across a field that's owned by Indiana Limestone um, south of Texacon's property on Fluck Mill, and then head uh, south of Fluck Mill on the CSX corridor that Indiana Limestone owns. 
Indiana Limestone has identified a large amount of high-quality limestone in the, Anna, in the Indiana Railroad Corridor, which they would like to continue to mine. Rice said the Parks Foundation owns that part of the Indiana Railroad Corridor, but is willing to allow it to be mined. And the Board of Directors of the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District has approved a final contract with Kessler Consulting to conduct a feasibility study for a mixed waste processing facility, also known as MRF, MRF. The feasibility study is expected to take eight months. In the May 11th meeting, the board discussed various institutions that produce waste which could possibly be processed at the facility. Board member Patrick Stoffers questioned the scope of the contract, which includes Indiana University, but not Ivy Tech. I'm wondering, um, Ivy Tech's not in here. And there's like 7,000 students there. And I'm, I'm curious, it seems like that that's would be smarter to include than, um, if I'm looking on page three, Morgan, Brown, Lawrence, Green, and Owen counties. I don't understand that at all. Yet, an exclusion of Ivy Tech. The district's executive director, Tom McGlasson, Jr., said the scope of the study could be expanded at any time for a fee and explained the interest in surrounding counties. There was interest uh, by those involved in drafting the RFP of looking specifically at the city of Bloomington and Indiana University. Uh, thus, those two are specifically mentioned in the RFP. Well, um, I, I get that. There, there was also interest in, in looking at the contiguous counties, you know, based on, you know, our the previous research and, and, and data that was discovered, you know, over the past seven or eight years and looking at doing a MRF and, you know, concerns about, uh, you know, sufficient volume to make the, the facility sustainable and, and that, you know, looking beyond just Monroe County to, and this is, you know, because of the type of facility that we're looking at doing it, you know, volume, 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 if, if it's going to be sustainable, we have to have enough material to do that. So uh, the thought of looking beyond Monroe County to where materials might be not necessarily guaranteed, but certainly, you know, available to feed into this facility, uh, we thought was worthwhile in, in looking at. The board approved the contract without changes on a vote five to one. Stoffers, who has opposed the MRF project in the past, abstained during the vote. This is the second time in eight years the board has paid for a feasibility study to help determine whether to build a MRF. The organization paid more than $20,000 for a study in 2010. The board of directors has been divided about whether to move forward with the project, leading to many starts and stops over the years. Here in Bloomington, biology professors and graduate students from Ball State's Department of Biology have been placing collars on deer in the local area since 2013 to learn more about deer living in urban and rural areas. In a Herald Times article, Ball State graduate research assistant Jonathan Trudeau said that of the more than 40 deer that still have working collars around their necks, 24 are in Bloomington. They have both GPS tracking collars and long-term VHF tracking collars that monitor deer movement. After the current research study is completed, the GPS collars will be removed by remote release, while the, re while the more permanent VHF collars will continue to be monitored even after the study is completed in July. Those interested can learn more by visiting deerstudy.iweb.bsub.edu. 
In Indiana news, high levels of ground-level ozone prompted the Indiana Department of Environmental Management to declare Monday and Tuesday of this week as air quality action days for several counties in Indiana, including Monroe. Air quality action days are forecast in advance by the department, otherwise known as IDEM. The IDEM monitors fine particulate matter, such as dust, soot, and smoke particles, and predicts when the levels are likely to spike and cause health impacts. A combination of sunlight and hot weather bake gasoline vapors, factory emissions, and vehicle exhaust into the ground. Tuesday's levels in Monroe County reached an air quality index value somewhere between 101 and 150, or what the Environmental Protection Agency determines to be unhealthy for sensitive groups. The IDEM encouraged people affected by lung or heart conditions to avoid exertion and heavy labor. Children and elderly people were also urged to take precautions. Last year, the IDEM issued its first air quality action day on May 24th, which was nine days later than this year's. To keep ozone levels down, the IDEM encourages people to conserve energy. Conservation methods include using public transportation or biking, avoid drive throughs and not using excessive energy at home. Now, from air quality to water quality. A new study published in the Journal of Environmental Protection demonstrates from research into Pennsylvania counties that pollution from fracking kills infants. The study showed a statistically significant 29% excess risk of dying at age 0 to 28 days in the 10 heavily fracked counties during the four years after the development of fracking gas wells. During the study period, the state rate of infant deaths fell by 2%. The researchers hypothesized that naturally occurring radioactive materials released during the fracking process contaminate groundwater. The affected infants live in counties with a greater dependence on private water wells potentially contaminated with fracking fluids. A major component of early infant deaths is congenital malformations, known to result from exposure to radium and uranium in drinking water. The authors of the study recognized that chemical contaminants in the water from fracking could be a factor in the deaths also. In more fracking-related news, Dominion Energy and Duke Energy proposed to build the 600-mile, $5 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline to pump fracked gas through the heart of Virginia and North Carolina. Besides harming human health and threatening human safety and the climate, the pipeline would damage sweet potato crops along its route. With that in mind, the environmental organization Beyond Extreme Energy thought of an imaginative way to bring its message opposing the pipeline to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, in Washington, D.C., FERC is the agency responsible for approving or denying the pipeline a permit. Members of Beyond Extreme Energy stacked a half ton of North Carolina sweet potatoes in front of FERC's building and handed them out in small bags to FERC employees and passerbys. Gary Grant, a farmer from Halifax County, North Carolina, spoke about how pipeline infrastructure degrades soil fertility. 
Once a pipeline is installed, he said, it can take more than 50 years for the soil to recover. The newly installed Dakota Access Pipeline, which is not yet fully operational, leaked 84 gallons of oil in South Dakota in early April. Native Americans and their allies who have opposed the project since its inception are warning that the pipeline threatens its water supply and cultural sites and requires further environmental review. Four Sioux tribes have sued in an attempt to shut down the pipeline. The Indigenous Environmental Network, which helped organize the recent massive protests against the pipeline in North, Carolina, North Dakota, issued a statement saying, quote, the fact that this occurred before Dakota Access becomes operational is all the more concerning, unquote. Meanwhile, although the pipeline is slated to begin transporting oil on June 1st, no emergency plan or equipment is in place in case a spill occurs where the pipeline crosses the Missouri River. Such a spill would cause irreparable environmental damage and harm to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe's water source. Native Americans and other climate activists succeeded in temporarily closing several J.P. Morgan Chase bank branches in Seattle on May 8th in protest against the bank's loans for fossil fuel projects. Those projects include the Keystone XL pipeline, expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline plus all tar sands production. Twenty-six people were arrested, and the activists halted operations at 11 Chase branches. Two other branches closed. In downtown Seattle, about 50 activists took over the main lobby, making speeches and singing before police blocked the doors. At another branch, a few protesters entered the building while two other others blocked themselves by the excuse me, entered the building while two others locked themselves by the neck to the front doors with bicycle locks. Those actions signal activists shift to targeting the financial backers of fossil fuel projects instead of such sites as the Dakota Access Pipeline. According to one protester, fossil fuel projects are relatively small percentages of banks' portfolios and protests can hurt their public images. And those are some of the headlines for WFHB and Eco Report. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. We love getting emails and messages from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have future stories ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Today's Eco Report feature, we hear from Steve Higgs, an environmental writer and photographer who has published books including A Guide to the Natural Areas of Southern Indiana. In that book, Higgs documents 119 protected natural areas in Southern Indiana. In this next clip, Higgs begins by discussing the role of land trust in preserving these natural areas. Higgs spoke April 9th at Upland Brewery as part of the monthly Green Drinks program. So let me, let me throw some numbers at you here to put into perspective what, what role that Sycamore and the Land Trust do uh, in terms of protecting our natural heritage here. Indiana, the whole state of Indiana has 36,000 square miles or about 23 million acres total land mass in the state of Indiana. 
Now, when the, when the French explorers and the, and the Europeans first arrived here, 87% of the state of Indiana was covered by forest. 87%, 20 million acres of the state was covered by forest. There's a little stretch of prairie. Many people don't know that the Great Plains prairies and grasslands actually started in western Indiana. Along the Indiana border between Indiana and Illinois from Gary south to um, Terre Haute was the beginning of the Great Plains. With the exception of that and the rivers and the lakes, all of the state of Indiana was covered by one massive canopy of hardwood forest. From Gary to, to Lawrenceburg, from Evansville to Fort Wayne, the entire state was basically covered with, uh, with, with woods. 20 million acres was wooded. And of course, all of it was natural. All 23 million acres, by definition, at that time was, was natural. Now, my book, I have 119 sites in there, which total about 600,000 acres, a little more than 600,000 acres that, again, are protected in some measure. Okay? Uh, that's not a lot. That is not a lot at all. That's only 5% of the land mass of southern Indiana that is actually protected in some form or another. And when you consider that over a third of that, 40% of the Hoosier National Forest, and sadly and apparently, as I'm sure you're all aware, 100% of the Indiana State Forest System are subject to logging and other extractive uses. So even out of that 600,000 acres, well over 200,000 acres can still be logged. Now, there are many people, and probably some in this room, who would argue that management and logging and that sort of thing is, in fact, protecting the ecosystem. And I certainly don't disagree with them. But we all have different, um, I think, definitions of what protection is. So when it comes to land that is protected in perpetuity forever, there's not a whole lot of it left. You've got the Dean Wilderness down here on the Hoosier National Forest that's protected forever. Most of the sites on my website are dedicated state nature preserves, which means that they will not, they also will never be exploited or cut or developed in any way. Okay? And you have what the land trusts own. And that, that's basically it. Today, of that natural Indiana, when we talk about these woods, in the state of Indiana, the largest tract of land in the state of Indiana that has never been cut is 190 acres, believe it or not, inside the Evansville city limits. There's a place down there called Wesselman's Woods. I've stood under the tallest tulip tree in the state of Indiana. It's not the biggest because there's another one that has a bigger crown, but it's the tallest uh, uh, tulip tree in the state of Indiana inside the, the, the uh, city limits of the third largest city in the state. That these trees are still here is nothing more than the grace of God. That, that, that site actually sits right on the Wabash and Erie Canal. Had the Wabash, at the tail end of the Wabash and Erie Canal in the, of the 19th century, had that canal not failed, those 190 acres worth of trees would have been gone. They're only here because of that failure, and nobody ever got around to cutting them. The second largest stand of uncut timber is 88 acres in the Hoosier National Forest, just south of Paoli, in a place called Pioneer Mother's Memorial Forest. That's another one. The family, the heirs, they'd kept it, it, it pristine for generations, and what it came a point in time in the early 20th century when the family heirs decided and actually sold these 88 acres of old growth, true old growth, to a Louisville timber company who had plans to cut down those 88 acres. A group, a civic group down there called the Pioneer Mothers, along with the U.S. Forest Service, organized the community, raised the money, convinced the, 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 the timber company to not cut the trees, and then bought the land back from them. That's why those, those 88 acres still exist. The third largest is, the, is Donaldson's Woods, which many of you have probably been to in Spring Mill State Park down here, just down uh, south of, here, of us here about a half an hour or so, which is 60 acres. And again, 
Only divine intervention saved those woods. I actually wrote the story about a, a story about George Donaldson, who owned the property, who was an eccentric Scotsman, who was imprisoned in Scotland in the 19th century, maybe for murder. Nobody knows for sure what it was, but he was in prison, and his wealthy father bought him out of prison and onto a boat to the New World. George Donaldson ended up owning four estates in northern in the in North America, one of which being the acreage down in Spring Mill State Park, and he was a very eccentric guy. He was a big game hunter, but he wouldn't allow anybody to hunt on his property down there. He never allowed a tree to be cut down there. That's why those 60 acres still exist. And when he died he, in the early 20th century, he died without a will. And under Indiana state law, because he didn't have a will, the property ended up going to the state, first to Indiana University. Indiana University in the early 20th century then transferred it to then the, Indiana, the new Indiana Department of Con Conservation, which became the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. And so those 60 acres of trees down there were never cut because George Donaldson didn't have a will. If he'd have had a will, they would have been sold to somebody, and those 60 acres would be gone, would be gone as well today. Okay? So... Enter Sycamore Land Trust and the Land Trust. What they do according to what you'd have to call the Nature Conservancy model, because the Nature Conservancy is the oldest and the biggest, is they protect land in perpetuity. Again, I love that phrase, in perpetuity. It's very lyrical, as well as it means forever, right? Nothing can happen to these places forever. They, they are allegedly forever protected, although we thought that about the state forests, at least the backcountry areas. And Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence have had no qualms whatsoever about logging in our backcountry country areas, but that's a whole other discussion for a whole, for a whole other time here. The land trusts that are, that are in my book, those five land trusts own about 90,000 acres. The Nature Conservancy is the biggest. They have 80,000 acres that they, are, that they steward for us. Sycamore is second with 9,000 acres. Of course, they're all in southern Indiana. The Nature Conservancy is all over the state. The Central Indiana Land Trust, which I believe is, is out of Indianapolis or the Indianapolis area, they uh, own and protect 1,000. The Oak Heritage Conservancy, which is another land trust based down in Hanover, down on the Ohio River, they have 700 acres, and then there's a tiny little 100-acre spot down by Lawrenceburg, where Indiana meets meets Ohio and meets Kentucky, called the Oxbow, which is a which is an area I won't go into it, but it, but altogether, like I say, these organizations protect about 90,000 of the. 600,000 acres that are listed in my book here. That's about 15% of what's in my book. In my book, I didn't catch them. I didn't get everything. I don't claim to have captured every single natural area in southern Indiana, but I got most of them, and I got all of the big ones, all of the really important ones here. So about one out of every seven acres of those are, are managed and, and protected by land trusts and nonprofit organizations like Sycamore and these other folks. Okay, so they play a very, very important role. I'm in touch. I work quite a lot. Mike Hamoya, if anybody knows Michael Hamoya from the Department of Natural Resources with the Division of Nature Preserves, he's the state botanist and has been since the mid-1980s. I think he started in 85. He wrote, he's the, he has the definitive definition of what are natural areas in southern Indiana. He's told me there's nothing more left to save. Okay, everything that is really worth having, we already have. So that just emphasizes and highlights, I mean, there are places where we can add on, and there are certainly places that are worth saving, but in terms of what's left of original Indiana, and there's not much of it that is actually original, it's just representations of what we had before, it's basically saved. So the role that Sycamore and, and the, the Nature Conservancy and all these groups, the, the role that they are playing is absolutely essential.
Politico Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. As summer wanes into fall, observant gardeners may see an odd grayish egg-shaped object partially submerged amidst their wood chip mulch. Cut it open and you will see a hollow cell surrounded by a watery gelatinous substance. What is it? It is the egg of the stinkhorn mushroom, and if left intact, will thrust itself to heights of 10 inches of more. There are many species of stinkhorn mushrooms in several genuses. The Latin name for one genus of these mushrooms is phallus. It was given this name by a wise-cracking French mycologist, Etienne-Pierre Ventinat, in 1798. The common name, stinkhorn, refers to the fetid odor coming from the mushroom. The head is covered by green slime, and the smell attracts flies. Once the flies land, the spores are carried away to another location on their feet. The stinkhorn mushroom I found in my garden was in a bed of wood chips. It was Mutinus caninus, the dog stinkhorn, and it is a reddish cylindrical body without a distinct head covered by green slime. You can almost understand why Eddie Darwin, the granddaughter of Charles Darwin, would burn them when they appeared in her garden, quote, to protect the purity of her female servants, end quote. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And now for our weekly events calendar. The Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra's second annual Infusion Music Festival has been taking place at the Hilbert Circle Theater in Indianapolis since Wednesday, May 17th. The festival celebrates the connection between music and the environment. The festival ends with a final concert on May 20th at 8 p.m. The final concert will also feature leading environmental organizations. This is a ticketed event and can be purchased at the door. Enjoy a nature hike at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Saturday, May 20th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Experience one of Bloomington's hidden outdoor gyms with naturalist Joss Nicholson on this 1.1-mile hike through multiple forest types near a cascading stream and up close to a small shelter cave. Dress for the weather and prepare for a moderate hike. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. The Indiana Audubon Society is hosting a spring birding event at Cool Creek Nature Center, located at 2000 East 151st Street in Carmel, Indiana, on Saturday, May 20th, from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Discover this hidden oasis just north of Indianapolis. The deeply wooded and beautiful 90-acre park features four miles of wooded trails, perfect for bird watching. You must pre-register to participate by emailing jeffcanada3 at yahoo.com or call 317-774-2500. There will be a wildflower hike at Brown County State Park on Thursday, May 25th from 10 a.m. to 1045 a.m. Meet Ella at Straw Lake 
and venture down the trail as she discusses which wildflowers you will be seeing around the lake. Meet at the Straw Lake parking lot. Be a pollinator at the Payne Town State Recreational Area at Monroe County at Monroe Lake on Friday, May 26th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Learn why pollinators are important. Take time to make a bee-themed craft and add your personal bee to the pollinator mural. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Joe Crawford, Kathy Norton, Gerard Dill, Lindsay Jones, and Sarah Vaughn. Molly O'Donnell and Joe Crawford produced the feature. Aaron Comforti edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled, compiled, compiled our events calendar. Our executive producer and engineer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and again on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.